Absolutely. I still remember the first person I had to tell that they had cancer on a biopsy and how completely bereft of any skills I felt I had and how desperate I was to just model it based on something I had seen like in a movie or, you know, I was really grabbing straws. This is Here After, and I'm your host, Megan Devine, author of the best-selling book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay. This week on Here After, Dr. Rana Oddish on compassion in medicine and what it's really like to listen to others, and honestly, to listen to your own self. Settle in, everybody. An excellent conversation is coming up right after this first break. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started, one quick note. 
While we cover a lot of emotional, relational territory in our time here together, this show is not a substitute for skilled support with a licensed mental health provider or for professional supervision related to your work. Hey friends, so this week, (laughs) this week I would like to say that I uncharacteristically gush about my guest, but in, in saying that I think it's possible that I might gush about a lot of guests, I don't know. It is true though that I am a bit obsessed with this week's guest, Dr. Rena Oddish. She's a critical care physician, founder of the CLEAR program, which is a narrative-based communications training that helps medical staff practice empathy in critical care, and she's the author of the book, In Shock. I first found her through her essay, The Shape of the Shore, where she writes what it was really like in those first early months of the pandemic for medical providers. It's haunting and gorgeous and really hard to read. Dr. Oddish is really, really an amazing human being. I mean, I feel like I say that a lot. This is one of the perks of doing the show is that I get to have conversations with really amazing people. But Dr. Oddish, man, whew, she is no stranger to loss. In her last year of medical residency, Dr. Oddish became very ill. A tumor burst in her abdomen, causing a massive loss of blood. She was seven months pregnant at the time. She lost the baby, as well as nearly losing her own life. And the things that she heard from her medical teams as she was waiting for surgery and as she made the long climb back to health, those things she overheard really opened her eyes, or maybe her ears, to the unfeeling, cruel, and often unintentionally dismissive things that care providers say to and about their patients, especially when they think their patients can't hear them. And that experience lit something up in her, a desire to help her fellow medical providers learn to communicate with compassion, to really listen to the patients and the families in the room. And as you'll hear her say in the show, she wanted more compassionate communication, not just for patients, but to help nurses and doctors and surgeons regain some of their own humanity, their own power that was maybe lost or ground out of them as part of the medical industrial machine that we all work in. And her approach to teaching is just so kind and so generous and so entirely shame-free. Whether you work in the medical professions or not, I hope that you love her as much as I do. Now, if you do work in the medical field and you're still kind of reeling from everything these last few years have taken from you, please be sure to listen to this episode. It's a beautiful meditation on compassion in action for everyone. But if you're one of those people we called a hero over the last few years, you're really going to dig what Dr. Oddish has to say. All right, on with the show with the excellent Dr. Rena Oddish. Rena Oddish, I am so glad you're here. Thank you so much for joining me. I know you're at the library at the hospital right now. So I'm just, I'm just really thrilled that you're here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be joining you. So I got kind of lost in all of your writing over the mm. weekend. I try not to work on weekends, but I started reading your book towards the end of the week and I couldn't stop reading it. So thank you for being such a beautiful and poetic writer. There's there's something really, I'm going to go with the word luminous. There's something really lit from within in the way that you write and the way that you speak. So thank you for that. 
Thank you so much. I'm glad that you found it to be luminous. That's a lovely compliment. <laughs> I love that word. That's a really good one. So I talked a little bit about your work and what you do in the introduction, but I would love to hear your story from you. So these days as a physician, you're focused on the patient experience and communication styles, but these aren't like, those aren't typical things that a doctor focuses on. So what happened for you that made you feel like that kind of focus was important? Yeah. I had sort of two educations. You know, I went the traditional medical school residency fellowship route and learned so much beautiful science and just fell in love with the human body and and all the different ways that it could fail and really prided myself on on helping in those acute situations. I went into pulmonary and critical care medicine, but because I think the universe understands irony on the very last day of my training, I got critically ill myself. And it began really a 10-year odyssey into the patient side of medicine. And when I got sick, I really got sick. I had a tumor that was in my liver that ruptured, and it was like an artery bursting. I just lost all of my blood volume into my abdomen. I was seven months pregnant at the time, so we lost that baby. I went into multi-system organ failure. I ended up on a ventilator. I required massive transfusions, replacing my blood volume probably three to five times over, and then woke up in my own ICU, you know, on a ventilator with my priest praying on my body and got to experience medicine from the other side of the bed. And when I say that there were so many errors in miscommunication, there was nothing for me to do except to go into training physicians in compassionate communication after my illness. I love how you just phrased that, like there was no other option. Like you can't experience that and then go back to business as usual. That's exactly right. And it it took time because my first goal when I came back was I want to be different. I could see myself in every error. I could see, you know, if my team said she's trying to die on us, I was horrified. But then I knew I had said that two weeks before. And so what was it about our culture that had us describing our relationships with our patients in these vectored ways that were very blaming and shaming so I went to improve my own communication skills that really led me on a path of discovering how we could be better. Yeah. Can you give me another example of the sort of errors that you experienced? I think that that can be sort of vague and esoteric for people. I, I bet that the people who have experienced what you just talked about are like, I know exactly what she means, but what kind of errors were you experiencing? There were really... So many. So the first thing I remember was hearing in the operating room them saying, she's circling the drain. And that one, it got my attention because it indicated that they thought I was dying. But also that could have been the last thing I ever heard. And I also have said things like that. So again, it was an awareness that we had acculturated to think that that was okay, having the team say that I was trying to die on them felt very blaming. 
I had a nurse who was very upset with me for not wanting to hold the dead baby. She really thought and told me that all babies deserve to be held by their mother at least once and didn't at all take into account what was right for my healing in that moment. Um, So lots of presumptions. We know what's best. Lots of not having a sense of awareness that the words we say around our patients impact their own belief about their ability to recover, their own sense of their resilience and strength and capacity and agency, and just a real entitlement. Yeah, definitely that that I know what's best thing, right? And like for certain medical decisions, I'm sure you know a lot more than I do knowing nothing. But that sort of human connection, that relatedness is really where that that gap is just massive. Absolutely. And and that idea that we we're the holders of medical information, maybe, but the patient is the holder of all of the information about their body and what they want from their life and what a good day looks like. And until we ask those things, I think it's impossible to make a recommendation about what a path a patient should choose. It's just it's not based in reality. It's just based in our own judgment and bridging that gap, as you said, through conversations that are really generative is critical. Yeah. I can hear, you know, the the healthcare providers listening to this thinking like, that sounds lovely. I don't have time for that stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the the realities of managed care and short staffed hospitals and ICUs and treatment centers, like Okay, I'm going to use marketing terms here. Like, how do you sell this idea of compassionate connection to your patients, to medical providers that are barely hanging on? Honestly, in so many ways, it sells itself because there's really good evidence that communicating compassionately doesn't actually take longer. We've all been in situations where we're talking to a patient and they're just telling us the same thing because they're not feeling heard. And often that's because there's an emotional cue that we're missing. There's something that we need to acknowledge to diffuse the situation. And we're reading the emotional cues as as wanting a cognitive answer. So it is actually quite efficient. And that's true across the board, whether it's emergency medicine, family medicine, surgery, not only do the encounters take less time, but the patients are more likely to adhere to the plan of care that you co-create together. They're likelier to have better health outcomes. And frankly, that's the space where we have fulfillment. And so I think we have to redefine our idea of efficiency. I can get through a clinic visit in five minutes. My patient will have no idea what's wrong with them. And that's not authentic efficiency. Really educating, really building a connection. You know, it saves time on the back end. When you have to have hard conversations, you know who you're talking to and they know you. And that's priceless. I really love what you said in there. There's a book. Um, that maybe you're familiar with called Compassionomics. Yes. Yes. I love that book. 
My friends wrote it. They did. I I have it on my shelf. I love it. And one of the things that I love about that book is they start right out by saying, look, it actually takes you on average 90 seconds more in a patient visit to treat them like a human being and to hear what's actually in the room. Because there is that reality of what it's like being a medical provider in the systems we're in, in the time that we're in, and what the healthcare profession as a whole has endured the last few years. I I think, you know, very often when we talk about burnout and resilience, it's about putting that burden of resilience and self-care back on the providers who are already fried and like, here's what you can do to make this better. And so I want to take a step sort of sideways for a minute and talk about the experience of doctors and other medical providers for the last few years. And then we'll weave this back into how this relates to these compassionate conversations. So you have an essay that you wrote called The Shape of the Shore, in which you describe what it was like working during those really terrifying early days of the pandemic inside the hospital. Can we talk about that essay for a minute? Yes. Okay, this was one of those ones where I was like, I just need to keep reading it and rereading it because it's so evocative and so beautiful. Can you give me, give a little a little summary of what that essay is about? It's honestly probably the hardest thing I've ever written. I was trying to capture, as you said, what it was like in those early days, our uncertainty about how the virus was transmitted, the sense of isolation and dependency that we all felt, the fear that we were taking at home to our families, the mass deaths that we witnessed, and then kind of how we found our way through those early days, which was really through peer support, really through sharing our experiences and identifying in each other the light and the beauty and the magic that we couldn't see in ourselves. Yeah, and there, there's something about the telling the truth part of that experience of peer support and really seeing each other that there's this great section where you're talking about, I actually don't remember if it's in that essay or another one where you were writing about those early years where you're talking about, you know, they talked about us as heroes and talking about us as heroes meant that they didn't have to see us. They didn't have to see what we were struggling with and the ways that we needed to violate our own morals, our own values, our own beliefs because of the situation at hand. I've come to know that people call you a hero when they're going to force you to betray yourself and that that is a signal that you are being sent into a situation that will not leave you whole. That's such a powerful way of describing it. I think everybody is so sick of it, right? Like so tired of the pandemic and there's just this like we're through the worst of it, worst in air quotes here, but we're through the worst of it. So bounce back and look at the ways that you were resilient and let's like pay attention to the task at hand, this sort of speed dating with trauma, right? Like let's just get it over with quickly. But what you're talking about is we've really got to talk about what happened for us in there. And I think healing comes differently for everyone. And allowing enough intersection points where people can find their way in, whether that's through therapy, whether that's through their writing, whether it's through the creation of art, whether it's through running, which I will never do. 
But um, hey, but we I like that option for other people. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I hear it works. We just need to acknowledge that we've been through something and we can either heal and talk about it or we can bury it, but it always floats. It will always resurface. Yeah. There's a section in that essay in The Shape of the Shore where you're you're describing like, okay, so administrative staff realizes that this is really tough on our physicians. So let's put them in basically like an encounter group. Yeah. And the the things that you describe in there, I was reading it and I was actually like yelling out loud, like how they've survived a bad breakup in the past is absolutely irrelevant to what they are witnessing on a daily basis. <laughs> so I would love to discuss that just for a second, like this, that sort of well-intentioned but wrong approach to trying to help people survive a violation of their values and their beliefs. You know, I have a, a really deep empathy for anyone trying to do wellness work or psychological first aid work in the time of a respiratory pandemic. There is nothing that is going to fix it. Everything is a Band-Aid except structural change, right? There are real structural changes that need to happen to keep people safe. But what we can do together in a room is just validate each other's experiences. And I think there was a real disconnect in those early days between the experience of the people providing the care and the people who wanted to help us. And in many ways, that was even more isolating. Yeah, it's like the the wrong tools for the situation, right? And mm -hmm. I see this a lot with grieving people, especially for folks who have you know, lost children or my sister was killed by a drunk driver or these sorts of losses that we don't like to talk about, that we apply these tools that work sort of in normal everyday life and they're really valuable tools and they're really helpful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely the wrong medicine for the situation at hand. Exactly. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper 
into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've been talking with author and physician Dr. Rena Oddish. Let's get back to it. One of the things that I really love about your work is that, and you tell me if I'm phrasing this incorrectly, but I feel like for you, the medicine at hand is validation and acknowledgement. Yeah, it's been uh, evolving for me. You know, when I wrote my book, I really thought that if we could just be present for each other's suffering, that that would be a kind of win that we hadn't done that well. And what the pandemic really taught me is that that's like the lowest level. Being a bystander to trauma is basically what that is. You are observing it. You are apart from it. And there's nothing that's truly healing about it. And what I hope we can come to is that we all have different you know, experiences, but we can validate the experiences of others as our own by saying, I might not have had the same material experience that you did, but I too have felt shame, moral distress, isolation. I know how you got to where you are because I've gotten there too. And then have that kind of resonance between us as humans without invalidating someone's experience without being reductive and saying, this is just like a breakup I had, but really just letting our souls kind of resonate with each other. I love this. It's actually one of the quotes that I pulled from your work where you say bearing witness is one rung up from being a bystander to trauma of just being a spectator. It's not sufficient and it's not healing. There's more to the assignment. here than just saying, I see you. I feel like, I feel like we've talked so much over these last several years about bearing witness and, and paying attention that it's become sort of one of those drive by supports, right? Like, yep, I hear you as this way to like, and let me tell you why you're wrong or why this isn't, you know, what you think it is that there is more there in our ability to actually see the other and connect with them and serve from that place of connection and seeing the other as human. 
but that door goes both ways. And, and I think one of the things that I really took from looking at your work with communication skills and training that you're doing is I'm going to ask you about the, the work that you're doing to help doctors understand new communi- communication styles. But even before we get there, like I want to talk a second about the skills that we need to be better communicators and, and better at empathy and better connection like as this thing that you have to do for the other. Right. You have to do this as part of being a provider. You have to be able to deliver this beautiful, compassionate care to your patients. But what you're doing in training physicians in better communication styles is you're actually helping them to feel human again after a pandemic that robbed a lot of people of their humanity. I'm so glad to hear you frame it in that way. That's certainly the hope that when we connect with compassion, that it unlocks some part of ourselves and there's reciprocity in it. And we see ourselves as human and the vulnerability that we so often try to pretend isn't there is allowed to be expressed. And those connections, they're the only thing that will give young physicians longevity or joy in work or a sense of purpose. And None of the other things that feel so pressing or urgent that are always calling for our attention, the emails and the pages and the phone calls and the mandatory modules for compliance and say, none of that's going to fill our bucket. The way that a connection with someone you're caring for, who you see as a fellow human will. Mm. I have a friend who went to med school in her late 40s. And as she was going through the med school experience, like she lost her hair, she had a whole bunch of like stress related illnesses. And I remember talking with her about it. And she said, I swear, med school is designed to beat the humanity out of you. Mm -hmm. How do you see the work that you're doing now as counteracting is maybe the wrong word, but how do you see the work that you're doing now interact with that med school culture of check your humanity at the door don't bring your human self into the room. We've definitely come a long way from when I graduated from medical school 20 years ago. I think that was the culture, break people and force them to be inhuman. Medical education has softened a bit in the interim. And honestly, they come out really whole. Mm. I'm always amazed how much smarter they are than I was at that age. They see the community, the role of health systems in community. They see the role that racism has played in so many health outcomes. They have a wider scope of understanding of public health, but what happens is then they enter the industrial health care system that is built for efficiency and built for profit. And that's why I choose to work with new residents, because that's the point that everything they've learned, all of the beautiful generative thinking they've done is liable to go right out the window because they're going to think, well, that was school and this is real life. And in real life, this is how we do things. And there's no more time for that. And that was just what they taught us because that was their agenda. But here in the hospital to fit in, I have to do these other things, the hidden curriculum. And I find if you can get them right, 
when they've started to have trouble with these conversations, when they've started to find them challenging and they have a little humility about it, but they still have all their idealism, that's kind of the perfect moment. Yeah, we want to protect the idealism. Like, you just see this work as sort of this buffer. Like, let's not let these new idealistic still human folks get devoured by the machinery. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. I also feel really hopeful in what you just said because I've talked to so many physicians who weren't trained that way Mm -hmm. during their med school time and that they they still need to worry about being seen as professionals Mm -hmm. if they cry on the job, if they're seen as even being affected by the work, even if they hide their emotions in front of a patient or in front of a family. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think the pandemic experience has done for the healthcare industry is made the humans who do the work a lot less willing to hold up the old system. Absolutely. Because I think it became very apparent when, you know, many places didn't have adequate personal protective equipment and were still sending in their staff and putting them at risk and people were dying that a bad system disadvantages everyone equally. And so the same way we saw it hurting our patients, we saw it hurting our providers. And if we figured out how much we have in common, I think that sort of combined lobby of professionals and patients could do anything. Yeah. There's a program that you do now in training these. I just keep seeing this. Sorry, everybody. I keep seeing y'all as these like little fuzzy chicks that we want to protect <laughs> and let grow into like the full expression of the reasons that you got into this field in general. So that's where my mind is today, protecting the the new chicks. But you're training doctors in these new communication styles really rooted in empathy and connection and humanity. The program that you run is called CLEAR. So can you tell us about that program? Yeah. So it it really was born out of Vital Talk, which is a national program, which is where I went to train after I first got sick, shaped into a little bit of our Detroit Henry Ford culture to suit our trainees and their backgrounds. So what we do is we utilize improvisational actors and they're really, really skilled. So depending on the skill level of the person who's in the chair, the learner, they can modulate the experience from one where it's really introductory level, just delivering serious news to someone who's a little anxious, all the way up to this father just got a call that his daughter drowned in the mini pool at daycare and you have to tell him and he is angry and screaming and you have to facilitate this conversation. And you know, when I say that, obviously that would be any physician's worst day to have to tell someone that their daughter died. But the thought that we used to do that without training is bananas So we think of it just like we think of, you know, a lot of the procedures we do, none of them are the same. No conversation is the same, but there are signposts you can look for that you can mark. There's a toolkit that you can draw off of. And it really creates an environment that I think no one is hurt, right? It's an experiential learning and they get to try out new skills in a safe place 
with their peers who give them feedback about what went well. You know, I saw that when you acknowledged her anxiety, that really the emotion in the room de-escalated and she was able to hear you differently. And then they walk out with that awareness and it's like a bodily awareness because Mm. it happened. It's not something we taught them. They had the experience and that's really where the magic comes in. Yeah, I love all of this. I love that it's theater. I love that we're employing actors. I also love the permission to experiment experiment with that, right? Because this is this is really, really daunting. I talk about this a lot and I, I teach about this a lot, like really paying attention and improving your communication skills and listening to what's being said and not being said, right? Mm-hmm. Address what's actually unfolding mm-hmm. instead of managing what's unfolding, right? I love that we're not expecting, you're not expecting these providers to already know how to do this. There, I think that there's just so much sort of pop psychology out there about like express your needs and have a better conversation, but they don't really talk about how terrifying that is and that there are real skills involved in this and real skills that you can practice in really low stakes situations, right? You don't want to have to learn this stuff on the fly and make things up and like feel confident in it. That's just, I think that's way too many barriers. Absolutely. I still remember the first person I had to tell that they had cancer on a biopsy and how completely bereft of any skills I felt I had Mm -hmm. and how desperate I was to just model it based on something I had seen like in a movie or, you know, I was really grabbing straws or you have a mentor who did it well and you try to dissect what they do, but it seems like magic. You can't even see what the steps are and you don't know how to emulate it. And the idea that we wouldn't train in communication when it's so impactful is just bananas. It is bananas. I mean, it really truly is that like this is, as somebody who has received medical care and who is not a medical profession other than being a therapist, but like you just want to be seen, right? And giving somebody who is in a stressful situation or they're anxious about somebody they care about or they're anxious about themselves, like hitting them with a bunch of medical terminology mm-hmm. is the opposite of helpful. But I feel like that's sort of my role as a provider. I will give medical information and this and this, but this is really what you're doing is really turning that upside down. And and again, coming back to you, like the medicine is in the connection. The medicine is in the connection and the best medicine in the world doesn't work on the wrong story. So you better know your patient's story. Ooh, tell me more about that. That was beautifully said. The best medicine in the world doesn't work on the wrong story. What do you mean by that? That is something that is attributable to somebody. So I'm going to have to give you his name. It's Jay Baruch. And he articulated those beautiful words at a narrative medicine conference. And narrative medicine is another one of the tools that we use to try to increase empathy and compassion and that kind of close reading that you're talking about, that there's what's being said, but also how it's being said and what's not being said and what's between the lines and the words. And it's something that I find really exciting. Yeah. Narrative medicine is one of my favorite things 
ever. I remember um, back in my early days when I was just a tiny wee baby duckling therapist, I had a book called Poetic Medicine, which talked about like the importance of story. I think in the psychotherapy world, we often talk about the, the power of telling your own story as a way of healing what's wrong right? There's always sort of that transactional piece to it that like you do this in the service of getting better. I feel like you come at narrative medicine without that expectation of a happy ending. Is that accurate? Yes. I rarely have an expectation of a happy ending. I think just going deeper is all I ever hope for. So being allowed to read the story in the room lets you be more effective and therefore more efficient in the care that you're trying to deliver. And having a belief that I have the capacity to hold whatever suffering reveals itself. Mm. One of the things that I, I think we don't necessarily believe in in medicine is that there's a value in that, that sitting and holding space for someone else's suffering is valuable. And we worry about the toll that it will take on us. And and for me, recognizing that often for our patients and families, just having a safe container for it is the most meaningful thing that I do because I can't alter the outcome. Even if I had a magic wand, I can't change someone's death from being death, but I can be present for it and attend to it and trust that that's enough in that moment. Yeah. Allowing what is true to be what's true is a really powerful act in that moment. I think there's so much speed in so much of what we do, right? Like, yep, this accident happened and this person is dead and we need you to make a decision about organ donation and like just kind of ticking those boxes and chop, chop, chop because I've got 16 patients all in a row waiting for you after this and feeling like you don't have the time to take a breath but also feeling like even if you had 30 seconds, you have no idea what to do with that. So you lean on what you know, which are the facts. Yeah, it's a cloak, right? A shield. It's something we hide behind, but I've never not done it. So when I have avoided these hard moments, I've always regretted it. When I've made myself too busy to be present intentionally, when I have avoided, I've always felt like I I robbed myself too. I didn't trust myself enough to have that moment. And I've always regretted it. Interesting. Like it it makes me think of, you know, coming into the medical profession is a commitment and you kind of have to take every opportunity for nourishment that you can. Mm -hmm. Right. And you don't get those moments back. Yeah. Right. You don't get those moments back to, to be fed in that way. And I think there's, there's the two pieces of that as one is seeing that human connection as nourishment and two, adapting your style so that you can be fed in that way, so that you can help co-create the situations that allow you to make those connections. So you have fewer regrets about who you are as a person showing up in this system that is sort of designed to drill out your humanity. Yeah, preserving your role as a healer, I think, against a system that would have you just be a therapeutic robot of some sort 
it's not easy, but it's for us as well as our patients. Yeah. I want to go back to what you were talking about in the beginning with your experience and the sorts of things that you heard people say, like she's circling the drain or she's trying to die on us. I feel like maybe there's two there's two different parts of your communications work. One is like taking the people who are interested in learning how to connect and how to address what's actually in the room. And then there's sort of overhauling the internal communications culture. How do you approach that from a systems perspective and on an individual perspective to get people to realize that their words matter and that maybe the things that we say in the operating room, like, you know, your people can hear you. Yeah. How do you approach that? You're speaking to two really important things. One is accountability. How do we hold each other accountable to the standards that we would want for our own care, for our family's care and vulnerability? And for me, the only way I was able to to write about the bad things that happened were because I had been a part of those things myself. And I knew I wasn't intentionally trying to hurt anyone. It was just an accepted part of the culture. And so by pointing out things that had hurt me and being very vulnerable and going to the NICU nurse and saying, you know, it sort of broke my heart when you said that. And to be able to have a conversation that says, that ends really with her saying, you know, I just thought I was advocating for your healing. It didn't occur to me that there was another way to heal. I wasn't taking your perspective into account. And I'll do that in the future with other mothers. I just didn't know. When you realize that everyone who walks into the hospital comes here not wanting to hurt anyone and wanting to do their best, and sometimes they're at their limit and they don't have the capacity to do their best, but by and large, they want to do what's right. I think it opens the possibility of having these discussions and pulling someone aside and saying, you know, it's a shame that you you phrase things that way in front of the patient, because I think it left them feeling like you didn't care and I know you care. And I wonder if we could brainstorm differently how we could say the same thing, but with different words. I love how kind that is. I love how, what a kind teacher you are. Thank you. Yeah. I think we just hear so much. You did this wrong, do better. And again, you know, like the medical profession has been through so much. And even of course, predating the pandemic, like, like the system was never built for humans, but like, there's just so much pressure to like do better, get better on fewer resources and kindness inside teaching. We cannot add another layer of shame to medicine. It's all built on shame. And so being able to say, I hold you in unconditional positive regard. I believe that you have the values that make you so wonderful. And in this moment, you didn't express them. And I noticed, and I care about you too much to let that moment pass. It's a way of still allowing people to learn without hurting them. Yeah, that is just beautiful and useful. And I I love it. And I love what you just described going back to that NICU nurse because people really do think that they are being helpful and they're being advocates. And what you describe her saying is like, you have to be curious about what feels like healing to the person you're talking to. Yes. Right? You have to be curious about who they are and what does healing mean to them 
and then help advocate for them to get like that's where your advocacy impulse comes in is how do you advocate for what feels like healing to the person in need of healing and not your agenda of what that is and there's just there's just so much around what we think people should do and really curiosity sounds like the better medicine there we have to start with curiosity otherwise we fill in the blanks with everything that we believe and it's not really healing at all it's not and it just becomes one more thing to sort of um, steamroller over the people in the room which is again not why so many people get into the practice of medicine they get in because they want to be of service and what i love about what you're doing is you are giving people the tools and the insight to be able to be of service in the ways they most want to and maybe haven't been allowed to explore in sort of a shame-free and accepting environment so thank you for that one of the quotes that I pulled from your work was the work here is to grow a heart that can hold all of this even now and I feel like that's what we've been talking about from all of these different angles from being a patient from being a family member from being a provider who has been in the healthcare industry for a long time and has been sort of ground down to leave their humanity behind to the new folks coming in to how do we create systems of growth and insight and learning that don't have shame and badgering at their root. Like all of these th things come together in that, in that line that you wrote, the work here is to grow a heart that can hold all of it. I mean, this is the work. It feels like that's what I'm called to do for myself and whatever little bits of wisdom I pick up along the way I share because I think we're all trying to to learn how to do this. So you've lived through your own life-threatening medical condition. You were on the very front lines of suffering and death during the pandemic. You continue to teach communication and connection inside a medical industry that, as we've said, hasn't always cared about the humans <laughs> on the floor. Now, the subtitle of your book is The Redemptive Power of Hope. So I'm really curious, I guess two questions. One is, how has your understanding of hope changed since you wrote the subtitle of that book? Yeah. And what does hope look like for you now in this moment in time? As an intensive care physician, I had a really complicated relationship with hope. And when I wrote the book, I was still struggling with this notion that uh, someone could be dying and the, the family might not see it the way that I did. And it felt like a denial of everything that I knew. And it felt like we were adversaries. And, and slowly over time, I came to realize that hope isn't this unfettered optimism hope is gritty hope is when you've looked at it and you know there is nothing and you have one last thing you can keep and that's hope that was hard to come by truly as a as an intensive care doctor but i got there and now it's interesting because i'm navigating life as someone who's newly diagnosed with cancer and I found that when I was going through the testing that led to the diagnosis, there was so much hope around, I hope it's nothing. I hope that it's benign. And that hope wasn't helpful to me because it didn't allow me to experience just what was unfolding, what was true. 
And what I needed was a kind of hope that wasn't vectored, that wasn't dependent on any outcome, just hope as an orientation to the future, full stop. And that's where I am now with hope. It's just an awareness that life is unfolding and there will be joys and things to look forward to and none of it's mappable and none of it's controllable. It just is available. And that is what hope is to me now. It's interesting. You said, you know, hope sort of lives in the future or that there is a future. One of my uh, other guests this year said that his issue with the word hope is that it is future related. Yeah. And that his his understanding of hope now is like, I can find the stillness in this moment. So just, I'm really fascinated by everybody's different ideas of what hope is and where it lives. And, mm. you know, going back to what we were talking about with meeting stories with curiosity, like hope is an individual thing. Mm -hmm. And we can be curious about what does hope look like for my friend? What does hope look like for this patient or this family? What does hope look like as a provider for what I'm living as a as a doctor or a nurse or a you know reproductive midwife you know like what allowing there to be curiosity about hope i guess is what i hear in what you're talking about that hope is a is a living thing that shifts and changes absolutely yeah. and lives in the moment just as much as it lives in the future where yeah. can you find joy now yeah I like the idea of the of hope in the future too. It's like it's not predictive. It's not predicated on any specific outcome, but that there is a moment to come. Mm -hmm. Even if those moments are very very limited and and prognosis says there's not going to be, you know, very many of these moments left, but that there is hope in what we can reach for in those moments that are to come. Yeah. Yeah. That's really beautiful. I really am just such a such a fan. I'm going to wrap us up because I'll just do that in my, in my, you know, um, promotion of this episode, because I think everybody really needs to listen to you, both consumers of healthcare, but also providers. It's really just been mm. such a long road in such a broken system. And I, I just, I feel like you bring really useful, actionable tools to help people stay rooted in their own humanity and deliver the kind of care that they got into this profession to deliver. It's just, I just really dig you. Thank you. I dig you right back. Awesome. And thank you so much for yeah. highlighting the power of hope and optimism and curiosity and learning. And it's beautiful. Yeah. I really, I just, I feel like we really can create the the networks and the relationships that so many of us long for if we pay attention mm -hmm. to our words you know, I, I kind of, I have to think that way because I'm a writer and because I'm a speaker, but I really just, there is just such power in narrative medicine, in really hearing the story and being curious about the story. So thank you so much for being here. It has been such an honor. We're going to link to your book. We're going to link to the essays that I was obsessed with over the weekend. But where else can people find you, especially if somebody wants to train in the things that you've been talking about? Like where, where can people go bask in your awesome I live on Twitter. I am very happy there, unlike many people. And um, my website, renaoddishmd.com, has links to all the podcasts and articles and 
it's a nice place to be if Twitter's scary. <laughs> if you are Twitter averse to the Twitter universe, <laughs> you will find Dr. Oddish on her website. We're going to link to all of that stuff over there, friends. Stay tuned. We will be right back with your questions to carry with you and more gushing from me about today's guest. We'll be right back. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, I leave you with some questions to carry with you until we meet again. You know what really struck me in today's conversation was Dr. Oddish's generosity of spirit. You know what I mean? Like the way that she talks about leading with curiosity and kindness, teaching without relying on blame or shame. 
that's a really uncommon and amazing approach to communication work. I mean, communication training is very often, and I'm totally, I totally do this sometimes, like, you're doing everything wrong. Let me show you why. And Dr. Adish just doesn't roll like that. It makes me feel so hopeful for the medical world and so happy for anybody who has had the opportunity to work with Dr. Adish or be tended by a medical provider who Dr. Adish has taught. It really makes me feel hopeful for that world. What parts of the conversation stuck with you today? What parts made you think about the ways you communicate and what you really want from the world around you? Everyone's going to take something different from today's show, but I do hope you found something to hold on to. I'd love to hear what connected with you or for you today. Check out Refuge and Grief on Instagram or here after pod on TikTok to see video clips from the show and leave your thoughts in the comments on those posts. That's a great way to tell me how this show felt for you. Be sure to tag me in your conversation starting posts on your own social accounts if you want to open a conversation about how we communicate. Use the hashtag here after pod on all of the platforms. We love to see where this show takes you. Remember to subscribe and leave a review. Those reviews help more than you know. If you want to tell us how today's show felt for you, or you have a request or a question for upcoming explorations of difficult things, give us a call at 323-643-3768 and leave a voicemail. If you missed it, you can find the number in the show notes or visit megandevine.co. If you'd rather send an email, you can do that too, right on the website, megandevine.co. We want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. This show, this world needs your voice. Together we can make things better, even when they can't be made right. Want more hereafter? Grief education doesn't just belong to end-of-life issues. As my dad says, daily life is full of everyday grief that we don't call grief. Learning how to talk about all that without cliches or platitudes or just practice gratitude, all of that is an important skill for everyone, especially if you're in a helping profession. Find trainings, professional resources, and my best-selling book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, at megandevine.co. Hereafter with Megan Devine is written and produced by me, Megan Devine. Executive producer is Amy Brown, co-produced by Elizabeth Fazio, logistical and social media support from Micah, edited by Houston Tilly, music provided by Wavecrush, and background noises provided by Luna, yelling at anyone walking by. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.